Hello and welcome to the Sitcom Club. We're back. I am Gary. You are... Mr. Tiltereiser. Tilt, we have a tweet. Oh, splendid. It is from Lapsed Cat and he says, Right, it's autumn, shake a leg, slug a bed. Well, we have done and here we are. Last week, if you didn't hear last week's show, we have now merged with Jaffa Cakes for Proust. It's an old bumper new mega edition of the podcast. We will be alternating weekly with Jaffa Cakes for Proust. At some point, the sitcom club is going to stop for the foreseeable future. We're not saying this is the last tearful sitcom club. It's all over. We all know that everything comes back sooner or later. At some point, we're going to hit some seam of sitcom related things and we're going to have to get back out there and sitcom club again. So that's the situation. And then Jaffa Kicks of Proust will continue as a fortnightly podcast, except for when Gary gets lazy and wants to take six months off. More realistically, what's going to happen is that at some point, Network will have another sale. I'll buy a ton of stuff. Probably Romany Jones will be in there and what have you. And they'll say, hey, we should do this on the sitcom club. And then it'll come back. But in the no, meantime, No, not yes. Romany Jones. No. Well, you know, it's going to be considered, hasn't it? We can do it by yourself. <laughs> I'm not sitting here for an hour. It's bad enough me sitting here myself watching Romney Jones. I'm certainly not going to sit there and talk about it. Anyway, what are we talking about this week? We are talking about, I think it's fitting on our comeback show, we're talking about the world's longest running sitcom, Last of a Summer Wine. Now, you may think to yourself, ah, but you've already done that. Well, we did. We discussed the 1983 Christmas special, Getting Sam Home, on a previous edition of the podcast, but that was an old fashion style sitcom club where we just analysed one piece of text alone. Now today we're going to look at initially series one from 1973 and then we're going to see how that then continues and expands and evolves right through until 2010. Now I'm sure you're well familiar with Comedy Playhouse. I suppose it's most famous for Stepstone Son, would you say? I would say that that's possibly been the most repeated Comedy Playhouse. There are probably shows that are talked about more than Stepstone Son that came out of that. At least in the mainstream, isn't Are You Being Served one? Yes, it is, yep. But in terms of actual comedy playhouses that regularly get dragged out, Stepton Sun's probably it. What no one remembers is that in 1993, the fledgling Carlton Television just ripped off the name and format and ran a little series of comedy playhouse by themselves. And maybe we'll do that one day. Maybe we'll do the Carlton Comedy Playhouse and the Sitcom Club. The chances are very much against it. What was it called? The Ten Percenters was that one? Ten Percenters was one of them. There was also one with Lisa Maxwell that was like a spoof of Surprise Surprise that had Kate Robbins as Scylla Black in it. And there was one with Ted Healy about a video production company. All this kind of stuff. There was one with Neil Morrissey as well. The only reason I know of all of these is because they all got repeated on Carlton Select. Oh, I've missed that channel. So... January 1973, Last of a Summer Wine, the pilot, is broadcast within Comedy Playhouse. Now, it's fair to say, Tilt, that our original trio is... Because I suspect probably most people listen to this. If you think of Last of a Summer Wine, you, more than likely you're thinking of Compo, Clegg and Foggy, because that's the most well-remembered trio. But we've got a completely different, not just lineup, we've got a completely different feel to this show at the outset. I think we have well-informed listeners, so they're aware that the original third man was Cyril Blaymeyer, played by Michael Bates. But yes, it's not just that there's one person different. The characters are different, particularly Clegg. In the pilot, Clegg is a very different character. He's much more cynical and 
you say that he's a sayer. Is that a phrase you picked up from Peepshaw? It is, yes. And I think it describes Clegg quite well in his early incarnation because he will point things out. He'll make observations. I mean, in the nicest possible way, sometimes he'll stir it. He knows that he's going to be sort of lighting a flame between Blaymeyer and Compo when it comes to perhaps politics or religion because they're on opposing sides of both subjects. So yeah, Clegg's a bit of a nuisance. I actually find him, even though Compo is even more repulsive in these early episodes than he is later on, I do actually find Clegg the most irritating character. That fascinates me that you'd find Clegg irritating. I find him different, but he did not annoy me. He just wasn't Clegg yet. I know it sounds odd because Clegg, you couldn't possibly have anything against Clegg in later years. Probably not even as late as maybe, or as early rather as say 76. By that point, he's Clegg. You know, he's lovable Clegg and he goes along with the, the stream and he doesn't really like to make waves. But you know, he's a nice sort of calming presence. But in these early episodes, if somebody's going to bring a subject up or if things are perhaps a little bit too calm, then you just know that Clegg's going to say something and then he's going to sit back and he's going to watch the two of them go at it. The thing that struck me about this early series compared with later ones is that Last of the Summer Wine is in the wrong order. In the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, and of course then eventually it slows down and other people take over, but in the midpoint there's lots of capering about. We're old people, we don't have many responsibilities, we can upset who we like, come on, let's go! <laughs> right at the beginning it's like, oh God, how are we going to fill the day? There's a line in the pilot, who's got more time than us? And it's not pleasant. I suppose it might be a cliche to say this, but these early episodes are sadder than the later ones in an unspoken way. I mean, there is an indication. And of course, in later ones, I mean, when Compo dies, you do have pathos. But with this one, there's this hollowness kind of around it that's gestured to, but not explicitly pointed out. I think it's mentioned that Clegg is redundant. Clegg's age... Yeah, I'm going to say Clegg is actually only in his 50s, which in the early 70s was a lot older than being in your 50s is now. But initially, I think the theme is these guys have grown up in a world of certainly job for life, may not be a good job, may not be a well-paid job. But in the 1930s, the job for life is still an idea coming out of the Depression. They've probably gone into war. In fact, we think we know something about Compo's war record, don't we? I'm not sure about Clegg. We find out more about Compo's war record later on. We find out that he was in France, and that is the focus of an episode quite late on, in, I think it was 1997. They'll have come out of the war into the post-war consensus and the welfare state, and now... Clegg's been made redundant. I think Blaymeyer is possibly retired. And Compo is of no fixed <laughs> engagement. Now, Clegg is a recent widower, whereas Compo, his wife, ran off. Well, I'll come to this little sort of three-part characterization. But the thing is, is that they have free time and they haven't been taught how to use it. You go to school, you go to your job, you go in the army, you come out of the army into your job, then you retire, and then you pot around. Clegg has been thrown out of that process early, and 
what do you do, particularly as they live in Homefirth? And I think this early version, I don't know if it's ever named as being in Homefirth, but this early version of the show, the Homefirth is slightly more realistic. The later one, it feels like it's trapped in a bubble. This early one, it has a normal looking high street and there's a sense that you might actually be able to get a bus somewhere. We were discussing at one point before we started recording the idea of a special. You know how sitcoms that go to movies have that tendency to try and expand the sitcom out? The most ridiculous one. I know it's not traditionally thought of as a sitcom, but Rugrats, which went from this concept of the children have massive global spanning adventures without leaving the living room or the backyard. And then has this silly movie where a toddler and a baby are trapped in a forest and somehow managed to get through it. So we're imagining a really quite sad, special Last of the Sunwine movie where they go on a bus to Leeds. Maybe they never <laughs> get there. Maybe that's part of the adventure. So they have a lack of options. And like we're talking about Reginald Perrin as well, their upbringing has not kept pace with the world as it's changed. Well, you mentioned about the lack of options. One of the first people we see right at the outset in the pilot is Nora Batty, but she doesn't feature a great deal in those early episodes. I think she's supposed to have a daughter. As a young woman comes out of her house while the washing's being done, and she has a couple of lines, and there seems to be some mention of her husband being called Harold. So those are little things that shift, becomes Wally Batty in the series, and they're childless. In Nora Batty's conversation with the other ladies, they speculate, what does Compo do? The younger lady says, what does he do when the library's shut and he's got no telly? He's got no telly because it's just been repossessed at the beginning of the episode. The library in this first series is their central meeting place. And I think, am I right in saying, Till, the original working title for this show was The Library Mob? Yes. So... They do visit, for example, Sid and Ivy's cafe. We'll come on to that in a moment. But we don't tend to see them in the pub a great deal. Principally, it's a library. That's their main meeting point. And we've got an interesting pair of characters in there that we'll come on to later on because they are sort of prototype characters for a long-running thread throughout the series from the mid-1980s onwards. But looking at the characters themselves... Okay, maybe I'm being a little bit hard on Clegg, but I can I find Compo tolerable. He is slightly more disgusting than he is later on. I think some of his habits and what have you, I think they're slightly toned down later on. Blaymeyer, even though he's full of it, Blaymeyer, he's full of tall tales about his war record and so on, but I find him actually, in a strange way, the most tolerable of the three of them. Because... I know that he is building up his record. And of course, he's a contemporary of Compo's at school. So Compo knows when Blaymeyer is fibbing. But Blaymeyer is at least willing to have a nice back and forth. He'll let Compo have his say. So Blaymeyer is conservative and Christian. Compo is a socialist and an atheist. And that's the back and forth that you get throughout that first series with, like I say, Clegg interjecting as when he sees fit and for the most part there aren't really a lot of other 
characters. The other characters are more sort of incidental. There are occasions when we've got plenty of characters on the screen. For example, when Gompo loses his key and has to go off to Rotary Club Do to try and get it back. But by and large, it's the trio. It's the trio that are the focus of these first few episodes. I think Blairmeyer being more likable is what evens out. You're saying that Compo and Leg are less likable characters. That's okay because their third is more likable. And it'd be interesting to rewatch series two. I'm just wondering what happens. Is it that by the time Foggy is brought in, the other two have become so likable that he really needs to be more of a jerk? And Foggy's a worse person than Blairmeyer. Yes. Because Foggy is a fantasist and he likes telling people what to do. Blairmeyer is just pompous and likes the occasional put down, but he knows that yeah, he's from the same background as the others. So is it a case of they'd become more likable, the third needed to be less likable, or the third ended up being such a horrible character that the other two had to be sweeter to make the show watchable? I think there's a little bit of both in there, to be honest. I mean, I think that Clegg, his persona is not quite as well-defined as Compo or Blaine Myers in that first series. And eventually he finds his sort of position where he is, I suppose you could say, the respectable member of the trio, because if anybody sees a trio coming, then they're going to be repelled to an extent by Compo and they're going to be bored by Foggy. But they can always enjoy a giggle and a laugh and a sympathetic ear with Clegg because he's got a nice sort of laid back way about him where he can observe what's going on he can take part in what's going on but he doesn't take it too seriously. There was a thing I was going to say about the three-part characterization. So as you said earlier, Compo atheist, Clegg agnostic, Blaymeyer theist, and socialist, not entirely sure and definite conservative separated, widowed, and as far as I can tell, single. But then, the obvious thing is, of course, working class, middle class, upper middle class at least, but they're not. They represent that, but it's really all about, if I may use the A word, aspiration. They're all actually the same class. It's just how good they are at pretending. The fact that Compo is there is what makes Blaymeyer tolerable. Because Blaymeyer could be as insufferable as Foggy if it wasn't for the fact that Compo can always call him out when he's trying to spin a yarn. Because they were at school together and Compo knows everything about Blaymeyer. Strange thing about Blaymeyer is, I think this is possibly why I sort of warm to him. He knows that Compo is going to respond and call him out when he is embellishing his record or his his upbringing or his background or whatever it may be, but he just lets him do it. He doesn't seek to, you know, quieten him down or, or shut down his conversation or anything like that. He just tolerates it. And that's sort of quite charming. That's quite a sort of playful attitude. Yeah, I'm going to say what I'm going to say, and then he's going to put me down, and we're not going to talk over each other. We're just going to have a nice back and forth. You get the impression, obviously, they've been like this their entire lives. So it's almost as if they probably know exactly what the other one's going to say before they say it. And I suspect that they're probably already repeating conversations that they've had many, many times before. So another thing I was saying then about this being a more recognisably real-world Homeforth with a recognisable high street, and I think that's another thing that serves to make it a little bit more hard-nosed. There is some nice 
scenery, but it's not scenery porn. I think some of the later ones is just oh, sitting on a hillside and look at that. Let's say something droll while we look at this beautiful hill. This apparently was a habit of Alan J. W. Bells, who was the director of the majority of episodes and entirely from 1983 onwards to its conclusion. He liked the wide shots. And apparently this once caused a little bit of conflict because Brian Wilde actually preferred the tight shots of the three of them. And he lobbied for Sidney Lotterby as director because that was his preferred style. It's quite an interesting story looking into the background. This is a show which has a lot of toing and froing behind the scenes with regard to cast members and you know, production crew and so on. What we're seeing with Blaymire and Compo as far as politics is concerned is a realistic depiction of what Michael Bates and Bill Owen were like as far as the backgrounds were concerned. And they had some fairly heated arguments off camera in the very early days until they were told, look, you know, if you two are going to work together and this show is going to be a success, then just stay away from the topic of politics. I mean, it's one of the oldest sayings, isn't it? Never discuss politics or religion. It's good fodder for the show itself, but obviously it doesn't make for a very happy working situation. So part of the look of it in some ways harks back to our hauntology discussion. The idea of semi-modernisation. He put up a very 70s looking sign on a black stone building. Living rooms that have had different, slightly modern touches that have then gone out of date and another modern touch has been put on top of that. To have 40s mantelpieces and 70s wallpaper and they're all fighting each other and flushed doors. Do you remember those? Mm-hmm, yes. But it serves to make Series 1 Homeforth a little less attractive. Well, depending what you like. I quite like them wandering around this semi-rural, semi-urban, not-quite-one-thing-or-the-other town. It's an interesting comparison when you said about later series look as if Homeforth is in some sort of bubble. If you compare this, because like we said, it began in early 1973. Now, if you compare this to other shows such as, say, To Death Is Depart or Like The Lads, those shows are affected by the housing situation. So we've got, for example, in the movie version of To Death Is Depart and the movie version of The Like The Lads, we've got depictions of the new high-rise flats, for example. So there you've got characters who have been in the same abode for maybe you know, decades, and then suddenly they're in something completely new. Whereas, like you say, you've still got the same location you've still got the same houses and abodes but they've got like little touches they've got like little areas where there's been that bit of improvement this bit of improvement and so on perhaps somebody from the council's come along and said right okay we're all going to have indoor toilets in these <laughs> homes from now on and little bits and pieces like this but yeah fundamentally it, it's managed to stay away from that sort of bulldozer mentality of the late 60s and a lot of the area has been preserved but that all seemed to go away in the 80s and 90s sympathetic modernization happened in places. I wonder if that's key to the longevity of Last of Summer Wine, because even in its later years, and even at the point where it wasn't necessarily as popular, or let's be perfectly honest, it wasn't necessarily as funny as it used to be, it was still getting really, really solid audience figures, and getting very high audience appreciation numbers within the BBC as well. There's a nice sort of element 
there were in you know, a world that's always changing. Last of Summer Wayne's still always there. It's always there on a Sunday evening, or it was up until 2010. And you could rely on it to not have fundamentally changed overnight. There was never going to be any huge shake-up where Last of Summer Wayne suddenly became modern. It's also catering to the hidden demographic. Old people. There's lots of them out there. But they're not appealing to advertisers, so significant amounts of culture now pretends they don't exist. Or just advertises pensions and stairlifts to them in little roped-off areas of the schedule. Because I'm thinking, still open all hours. It's a big hit. I was just, was yeah, it pulling just in 7 that, million yeah. an episode? Mm. Those yes. like Doctor yeah. Who figures. In all honesty, right now, that's about 40% more than Doctor Who's getting on the night just now. <laughs> and yeah, it's coming back for its second series soon and it'll probably still be hitting the same numbers. That's because there's a lot of old people out there who want to watch TV. And of course, they watch the same TV as everybody else. But it's not something specifically geared for them in prime time. I just always remember there was a lot of... Well, as I used to say, Last This Summer Wine provides a very valuable service for old people. They can slag it off and think it makes them look like hip young Turks. God, you know, when some middle-aged, grey little men... Oh, Last This Summer Wine, anybody? Whoa! <laughs> Who's this hip young gunslinger? Sorry, but it's this thing. It's people whose opinions are genuinely small and old and grey and pinched and cold, but they think that by holding on to the one thing in their youth they were good at, which is a certain casual callousness, they're avoiding their own mortality. I guess you can say that this is the voice of experience. I've been on the receiving end of that kind of mentality. Attack something that's too old, dismiss something that's too young. I feel very protective of old stuff. Old, uncool pensioner, senior stuff. These things are not there for 45-year-olds to be nasty about in the belief that it somehow makes them look 30. Anyway, Andy Cap. When we said about Andy Cap, how they didn't really form half hours, they were just little sketches, little bits, little strips. This series is like that. There might be something you could describe as the plot of the episode. Compo loses his key. They all decide to go to a stately home and wander around. But there's no real movement. Once the idea is introduced, they just run around it. Let's keep doing silly things about finding Compo's key. But you could almost break them up into seven-minute shorts. I found that quite appealing. I don't think you felt the same way. I wasn't overly enamoured with the first series of Last of Summer White, and I have to be honest, I didn't enjoy it quite as much as I thought I was going to because, yes, it's more sort of earthy and it's not quite as charming as later series. And I actually thought I was going to enjoy that more, to be perfectly honest. But for whatever reason, maybe I'm too used to Last of Summer Wine, sort of 76 onwards. I've heard of small people as well who've then gone back and revisited the early series that is a little bit of a culture shock. If you're really used to watching the episodes that they repeat, Ad Infinitum on Gold or Drama or Yesterday, they tend to take them from the middle to later episodes. You don't really tend to see these early episodes very often now. That said, I'm going to continue with it because I'm interested to see now how this evolves into series two and series three and so on. 
And I want to see if you can actually sort of put your finger on the point where Compo becomes slightly less repellent and Clegg just sort of relaxes a bit more and so on. And maybe it's when Foggy comes in. But it'll be interesting to have a look at Series 2 and see does Blaymire change in any way. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of Blaymire to analyse because Michael Bates wasn't too well in the mid-1970s. So in 76, we've got Brian Wilde. At this point, I mean, he's been in all manner of different things, been a supporting actor in different bits and pieces. At this point, he's probably most visible as prison officer Barraclough in Pottage. And he arrives and he is playing the role of Walter Dewhurst, known as Foggy. Like him or loathe him, I mean, Foggy is probably, if you ever have the image, if you ever have the trio in front of you, if you wanted to tweet a picture of Last of Summer when it was representative of the series, you'd choose Foggy, Clegg and Combo. And Foggy, he's a difficult chap to warm to because he is so doer, as we would say up here. Uh, a nice expression I saw the other day, which I think applies to Foggy, he is a miserable list. And it's nice that Clegg and Compo do adjust their personalities to take Foggy's personality into account. He's a pompous liar. All the stuff about his war record. Whereas Blaymire is a liar and will embellish his war record and so on, like I said, he's got that sort of nice cheery disposition and he doesn't mind Compo shooting him down in flames. Yeah, he'll embellish. Is... He won't claim that he was in Burma and the locals called him Great White Warrior or whatever. There is one story where Foggy tells this nonsensical story about how all the locals feared him, and he tells the others what to do. I think initially the three of them go looking for things to do, whereas Foggy tells them what to do, and that's when we get him getting army surplus radio kits, and because once he's replaced with Seymour, who's meant to be an inventor, Seymour's a nicer character than Foggy but in some ways more detached because he actually is convincing the upper middle class. He was a headmaster at a minor public school. That's when you start getting rolling down the hill in a bath. Did we work out it was 1993? The first time they actually went downhill? Well, the first, probably the only time they went downhill in a bath. Or is that the one where they try and build a submarine? But it then becomes, let's get a gadget and mess around with it. Let's play a game. The interesting thing about their relationship when Foggy comes in, like you say, yeah, he's very much commanding them and saying, right, come on, chop, chop, let's get on with this. Now, okay, the danger, of course, is overanalyzing it and forgetting that, you know, what's happening is what Roy Clark has written. But nonetheless, Compo and Clegg go along with it. Foggy is obviously not so overbearing to the point of alienating the old two. Even though Foggy, yeah, he is a pain in the rear, but... Clegg and Compo can tolerate him because past experience tells us that whatever harebrained idea he's got now, probably not going to go spectacularly well. And there was always the possibility of seeing Foggy with egg in his face, and that is quite appealing. <laughs> somebody of the, the character of Foggy, somebody of his personality. Get any possibility of setting them up for a fall, then you're going to take it. I think if you want an idea of where Blair might have gone, is looking at Frank Thornton as truly who's like an even softer version of Blairmire, the little bits I remember, was not a regular watcher by the time he came in. But the bits I see, he is moderately boastful, but he's definitely willing to go along with silliness. Truly, as an ex-policeman, I think that he commands a little bit more respect. Would you agree? Yes, he's more fulfilled. He has had his career, and he has done interesting things, and of course, it's probably broadened his mind a bit. 
And Seymour, of course, is a lovable eccentric. And whereas he might get under your feet or cause chaos for the locals with his latest invention or whatever it may be, it's difficult to get annoyed at Seymour because he's got his head in the clouds. He's a harmless crank. We're talking about the softening of the character as if it's just nothing but evolution. In Compo's case, there's an element of what they call flanderization, the exaggeration that happens to sitcom characters, that I think takes the sting out of some of his characteristics that would indicate certain sad things. Sorry, my vocabulary let me down there. The scruffiness. And I think early on that scruffiness is implied to be partially a result of his wife leaving him. When we get to first of the summer wine, he's always been like that. The ferrets. So later on, the ferrets are a standing joke because it makes us think of compost sticking things down his trousers. But these early episodes, there's a lot of mention of the ferrets in terms of killing rabbits. And a big hello to everybody who remembers us talking about Gideon. <laughs> and it then occurred to me, yes, because they talk about the whole family. The Simonites were notorious for keeping ferrets and there were more Simonites down rabbit holes than rabbits. I think, yeah, they keep ferrets to kill rabbits because rabbits are plentiful and it's cheap meat. They're poor. They keep ferrets because they're poor. I think less so now, but there was a time when rabbit was the cheaper meat. And when you get like Run Rabbit Run, the wartime song, because rabbit was probably easier to get hold of. And apparently my grandfather occasionally would leave dinner saying, oh, thank you for the rabbit that tasted like chicken. He wasn't being deliberately mean, I don't think. Have you ever seen Friday Night Dinner? No. Paul Ritter's catchphrase, so to speak, whenever they sit down for their evening meal is lovely bit of squirrel. <laughs> so, yes, that's a thing that I think is about poverty. The ferrets that then just becomes a joke about the contents of compost pants. So you get the impression from what we said so far that it's very much trio-centric. The only other supporting characters that we've got in this first series who remain into future series are Sid and Ivy, John Comer and Jane Freeman running the cafe. We're given to understand that this is the port of call of the trio in the morning before they then head off to the library. Sid and Ivy, I mean, they're an oddity, aren't they? Because they're a quarrelling couple, but they're not in the same vein as Basil and Sybil, for example. I really like Sid and Ivy. Yeah, I don't ever get the impression that Sid is just going to storm out one day or that Ivy's going to... Whereas, for example, Sybil will keep pleasant face towards customers and then get Basil behind closed doors and then give him a tongue lashing. Sid and Ivy have got no problem with just having their arguments out in public to the point where quite often they're just leaving the till unmanned. Obviously, they do actually make a nice couple and... It's an oddity, isn't it? Because to an outsider, if you weren't from that area, I suspect you come in and think, oh my God, if I just turned up during some awful <laughs> domestic quarrel, I really have I've picked the worst possible time to come in here. But then, of course, you know, the more often you go in there, you realise, well, it's always like that. I suppose like a, a slightly less potentially violent version of the couple on Father Ted. Northern matriarchy, that's the thing. It's a bit like the marriages in Laurel and Hardy films. The women are sensible and withering and the men are just trying to get away and do silly things. There's a line I've written down here. I think it's Clegg who mentions unpleasant women of strong character. 
I know Birdie complained when we looked at keeping up appearances that Roy Clark can't write women. And I'm not saying that's not true, but he is at least interested in them, sincerely. And once Nora Betty becomes more of a presence, I think Ivy has to soften up a little. And there's at least one occasion when Ivy saves the guys. She could have let them swing in the wind, and she doesn't. I think there might be an indication then there's a bit more affection between Sid and Ivy than we see early on. I think also when you mentioned Lauren Hardy there, I think there's also a little bit of the Lauren Hardy principle in play, whereas Stan and Ollie can say and do whatever they do to each other, but if a third person, say Jimmy Finlayson, comes in, then the two of them will instantly unite against this outsider, this outsider's causing trouble. So yeah, Ivy would have no problem (laughs) having a square go at the three of them, but if someone else came in, if an outsider came in and started criticising compos, dress sense, for example, I think that Ivy would put them in their place very, very swiftly. I was thinking that Ivy would say anything horrible she could think of to Sid, but if somebody criticised Sid, she'd defend him. I don't see that the other way around. (laughs) I think if the mob said something nasty about Ivy to Sid, he'd go, aye. (laughs) The similarities with John Comer's character in I Didn't Know You Cared. Can I be a bit controversial? No. I don't know. We'll go for it and then we'll see if it can pass the censor. I think the women in Last of the Summer Wine are better drawn than the women in I Didn't Know You Cared. And I know Peter Tinniswood is meant to be a little more high church than Roy Clark. He's literary. He's respectable in a way Roy Clark isn't. I think maybe Roy Clark likes women more. Well, we were initially just going to talk about series one, but I think you decided that series one has so many threads that shoot off in different directions that we had to start taking in all the episodes we didn't watch, which is about... 266. Well, speak for yourself. I've been watching them for the last three months, non-stop. <laughs> As we mentioned before, we get a glimpse of Nora Batty right in that initial pilot, but we don't see a great deal of her elsewhere in series one. Later on, 76 onwards, we've got Nora and Wally Batty. Now, we've mentioned Joe Gladwin many a time on the sitcom club because he's turned up, obviously, in Nearest and Dearest and Bootle Saddles in the big finale. And Kathy's staff, again, I think I know what you mean when you say that compared to Nora Batty, Ivy is slightly softer. But again, Nora Batty will whack Compo over the head with an umbrella or a pair of Wellington boots or a carpet beater or anything that comes to hand. And yet, if he stopped taking an interest in her, because he's taken an interest in her right from day one, so this is not something that develops later on, and you picked up something interesting, about the wrinkled stockings. But I suspect that if Compo suddenly stopped looking at Nora Batty in a desirable way, I think she'd be a little bit jealous. I think she'd want to know why. And if he had his head turned by another woman, I think there'd be trouble. Oh, the wrinkled stockings. Yes, I saw some of the middle period ones years ago on cable. And it was interesting that every time Compo mentioned the wrinkled stockings, he went, oh, wrinkled stockings. It was something that repelled him. It was a bit like she'd be a goddess if not for the wrinkled stockings. And I guess in that way, Roy Clark settles into a groove quite easily. 
he interests me because we need a nice word for hack or journeyman. Because I'm not saying that Roy Clark pumps stuff out without really caring what he's doing or necessarily phoning it in. But he strikes me as somebody who does what he thinks works. He writes to what people want. I think maybe that's why I don't like keeping up appearances. Different production team, different set of expectations, and Roy Clark is writing towards that. So yes, at some point, it's like, right, Compo, he talks about Nora Betty's wrinkled stockings a lot, and it eventually suddenly becomes admiring. There's an idea I want to broach about Roy Clark, and it's not uninspired, it's non-inspired. Roy Clark, I get the feeling, turns up to work. There's a songwriter who, I can't remember if it's the one I'm thinking of, so I won't name him, but I've heard about how he gets up in the morning and tries to write a song. He doesn't get up and go out and look at the flowers and look at the sky like Fotherington Thomas and wait for inspiration to hit. His feeling is is that if he goes around telling people he's a songwriter, then damn it, he has to write songs. You can buy songs from him. Give him the money, give him the subject, he will write a song because writers write. And I think there's some of that in Roy Clark. Some of his work, I think, does come from inspiration. I mean, he's written dramas and semi-dramas, you know, light dramas. At some point, we have to watch a movie called Hawks, which is what Timothy Dalton did between Bond films. And it's apparently said it's one of the favourite things in his career. But this is that television movie, A Foreign Field, which is all about wartime memories. And it's, it's got Alec Guinness, Leo McKern and Lauren Bacall. I've seen he's written an armchair theatre, at least one. He's written at least one episode of Mr. Rose. So he's not a sitcom machine. But I think once he thinks he's got a handle on that, he will write towards that. Now you can say it's settling into a groove, or if you want to be negative, you can say it's settling into a rut. But there's this strange balance between definitely having his own voice and his own style and his own atmosphere and opinions that come through, and I haven't mentioned flickers or pictures, and a balance between that and putting out work. Writers write. Roy Clark is a writer, therefore he writes. He hasn't stopped. He's in his mid-80s and he's still writing a successful primetime comedy. And he's writing it to a formula to a certain extent. But even then, occasionally the formula seems to fracture. The big surprise for me in Still Open All Hours was Leroy, because he's neither just Granville Mark II, nor is he an old person's idea of what a young person is like. He struck me as a very realistic character. And he's probably written in very broad terms. There's nothing really supremely 2010s about Leroy. You could put that character in any time period. But that's fine, because... <laughs> People don't change that much. There are constant superficial social changes, but there are still people now who behave the way they would behave in any time period. And if Roy Clark really was an uninspired hack, I think Leroy would be an awful character. Constantly talking about iPods. <laughs> okay, yeah, at one point Leroy does mention a homepage. <laughs> But yeah, no, when, when they announced Still Open All Hours and they said there's going to be his character leave, I thought, oh my God. Straight away, I'm thinking the Simpsons episode where they introduced Poochie into Ren and Stimpy. 
I'm thinking it's going to be something along those lines. He's going to have the headphones on and he's probably going to come in on a skateboard and he'll be talking about Wranglers and the jam. (laughs) But thankfully, he's a proper character and he blends in really, really well. It's one of the nice things about... I wasn't overly enamored with Still Open All Hours, but I get why it's such a success and it's really nice to see that all the people that they've brought in, like Nina Wadia and Johnny Vegas and... Tim Healy and so on. Now, Crusher. How do we feel about Crusher? Because again, Crusher seems to fail purposefully. He's not a realistic 1980s young person, but I kind of get the feeling it doesn't matter. He's failing at being that. He's not who he wants to be. I think that the problem with Crusher, and this is something which affects a lot of long-running shows when an actor passes away, as in the case of John Comer, is that certainly you don't want to get somebody in who is just playing that part. I mean, it's happened occasionally, like Potter, for example, another Roy Clark vehicle, when they had a third series in the works and Arthur Lowe died, they cast Robin Bailey in the role, but he's playing it in his own way. He's not obviously trying to do an imitation of Arthur Lowe. If you bring in another character, you don't want them to be too similar to the person who's no longer with us, because that seems tasteless. But in the instance of Crusher, you just know that he's there because there's a gap. And I suspect that that probably is a sort of a barrier to your warming towards the character. And yes, I take your point also that he he is a little bit self-conscious. I think he's trying a bit too hard. Basically, anywhere where he fails to sound like a realistic young person of the 80s works as characterization rather than a failure. And I will give credit that they do replace Sid with not Sid. They don't have, oh, Sid's cousins come to stay. Actually, it's worth mentioning that Jonathan Lindsley, who played Crusher, uh, recently made a public appearance in Homeforth. An evening with Crusher. I'm not sure if that's exactly what it was called, but I think he was very happy to come and talk about the show. If I still lived in West Yorkshire, I would have probably been there. Well, if you're listening, come out to Orange County. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is a thing I encounter. Sometimes I mess where I'm from and... People want a bit more detail than me just saying England. And when I explain, they haven't really heard of Yorkshire. But occasionally it's like, I'm from Yorkshire. Oh, that's the summer wine. It has a life over here. The PBS thing. I just want to mention one last thing about Jonathan Lindsley. You know where he's from, don't you? Bradford? Yep. Oh, fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Before we have a look at a couple of the spin-offs, it's interesting that we've got an episode which is a Christmas special. And as you were saying before, you know, Christmas specials, longer versions of the show, sometimes that can go a bit funny. They they can take them sort of out of their element and so on. Well, we've got one instance of a Christmas special which not only doesn't do that, but sticks to its roots, but also it's had a knock-on effect and it's actually affected pretty much the entire run of the series from that point onwards. Uncle of the Bride, I'm saying it's a Christmas special, was actually New Year's Day in 1986. This introduces us to Seymour, and I'm going to read this out verbatim. This is the description from IMDb about the episode Uncle of the Bride. Wesley and Edie's daughter Glenda is getting married, and Clegg and Compo make a new friend in Edie's brother Seymour. Foggy has left to take over an egg decorating business he inherited. Now, unfortunately, we don't get a lot of tales from the egg decorating business when Foggy returns. Later on, Brian Wilde actually left last of Summer Wine 
in part to go off and make White's Watchdogs, oh! which we've mentioned before on the club. And he's playing opposite Trevor Bannister, who then turns up in Last of Summer Wine later on. There's not actually any point at which Brian Wilde and Trevor Bannister are in the show together. They're a few years removed. So we've got Seymour arriving to replace Foggy, and he stays there for a few years. By extension, we've also got Seymour's sister, Edie, that's Fora Hurd, who was a constant in the show from then on. Her husband, Wesley, Gordon Warmby. I've got Edie's daughter, Glenda, Sarah Thomas, and she's getting married to Buddy, Mike Grady. And so you've got a whole swathe of people coming in in one go. And it's interesting you saying about like the character like Crusher comes in and lasts a few years and doesn't quite gel. And then suddenly you've got five people coming in all at once and they all remain, they all work. And of course, initially you have the young people in the show and by the time the show finishes, they're probably of a similar age to the original trio were in 1973. <laughs> Mike Grady and Sarah Thomas, they're an interesting pairing because where you've got, for example, Sid and Ivy a few years earlier, they have a similar type of relationship, but it's a little bit different in its own way because Glenda doesn't harangue Barry in the same way as say, Ivy does with Sid, but she's always trying to sort of nudge him and, and try and get him to buck up his ideas and he could look a bit smarter and he, he could do a bit more, he could be a bit more dynamic and what have you. And that's a constant that then runs through it. So yeah, poor Barry, he's always got that sort of run down. But I do remember sort of there are situations him. where she definitely pushes against the northern matriarchy of the previous generation that she's not going to whip Barry into a snivelling wreck who can't wait to get away. She's got her own way of doing things, and I really like that. By the time you get to mid-1980s and what have you, then there's a lot more to do with... We mentioned the bath in 1993, but long before then, you've got a lot more visual stunts. Can we mention and... the really stupid driving simulator? Oh, you mean... That somehow yes, knows yes. how you're moving and shows 16mm film to match the <laughs> movements of the steering wheel. <laughs> If I can just keep on the topic of the first series, which is what we were talking about, I always like departures from cliché. And there's a one where they go to the stately home and some members of Compo's extended family are coming. I think they do come in a ratty old van. And the normal thing would then for them to be disgusting, belching, scratching themselves, and the kids doing that thing in the... Other one with those kids going, I'll knife you in the chest. No, I'll knife you in the chest. And they're not. They're just uncouth. Bit uncultured. Tendency to say things that shouldn't be said in mixed company, but perfectly pleasant. Tony Hagarth plays very pleasant men very easily. And I like how that happened. Okay, well, let's go back to the future for a second. Tell us a bit first of the summer wine from 1988. I am partway through the first episode. <laughs> Did you buy it on eBay? <laughs> I just thought I'll get the first one and I'll check it out. And it's like about half an hour before bedtime, beginning to get tired. I'll just watch First of the Summer Wine. The pilot of First of the Summer Wine is about 45 minutes long. So I'm 25 minutes in. First of the Summer Wine was supposed to be the one that took over, wasn't it? There was talk at the time. Well, you last of the Summer Wine can't keep going forever. But now we have these young people to take the same characters because it has two problems it's a story with an end point we know and it's not always 
useful to have a story with an end point we know. Again, a case of Roy Clark writing for what the audience knows and cares about. He doesn't really carefully regard his own history. So Cyril Blairmeyer isn't in it, even though you'd expect him to be there. If I buy both series, then eventually I'll find out whether he's even mentioned. I've got a funny feeling, I don't know this because I've not seen it, but I've got a funny feeling he probably won't because like we said before, the early series don't tend to get repeated very often. I mean, it might be that for something like, say, TV 50 in 86, you know, they might just drop like an episode of the very first series and it's like, oh, see how they were back then. But most people, they wouldn't know who Blaymire was because he's never been referred to subsequently. There's a character whose name I've forgotten, though, who isn't from the later series. It wouldn't really mess things up if a gag requires mentioning somebody outside the characters we can see and for them to just say, Cyril Blaymire. Something like, yes, well, we don't let you do those things since he set fire to Cyril Blaymire's school cap. That wouldn't really, that would, that would indicate, that's the kind of thing that you'd get in a sitcom like that. But it would indicate a certain bond of history. But television, yes, you're right, didn't really work in those days. And I don't think you had writers who were quite so aware of their own mythology. But of course, the other thing is, is that you said 1986, they meet Seymour Otterthwaite. And now it turns out they always knew Seymour Otterthwaite. They knew him when they were 18 and he had that three-wheeler car. He's still distanced from them. He's still definitely posher and better off than they are. But he is possibly least like the character from the later series. Partially because he can't be as befuddled. Seymour's definitely the stereotype in some ways of the befuddled, old, eccentric inventor, the Professor Brainstorm type. He can't be that as an 18-year-old. So he's really just a young man out to impress with his college scarf and three-wheeler car. We should have actually done First of the Summer Wine when we were in our counterintuitive phase. Oh, maybe, maybe we'll come back to it. Maybe we will at some point. There's a few characters we haven't mentioned yet, and it's an interesting little tale about how these characters actually come to be. If you can get a hold of it, there's a really, really good book called Last of Summer Wine, The Finest Vintage. And it's by Morris Bright and Robert Ross. And within this book, which has got all manner of detail about the show's history and so on, there's a story of the stage show. The stage show initially was in 1984, and it was a summer season in Bournemouth. Now, Brian Wilde didn't take part, but Bill Owen and Peter Salas were both involved. And the storyline for this is about how they gain a new neighbour. Clegg's new neighbour is called Howard. And he's married to Pearl. Over the course of this play, we find out that Howard is in correspondence with a lady called Marina. And that's a large part of the initial first act. Now, Howard in this play is portrayed by old Mr. Grace, a.k.a. Grandad, a.k.a. Kenneth Waller. And in 1985, we have the characters Howard, Marina and Pearl all turning up in the TV series. Now, Howard is now being played by Robert Fife. Pearl is now being played by Juliet Kaplan and playing Marina, as she was in the stage show, is Jean Ferguson. Later on, they had another stage show, which initially was a UK tour and then became a summer season. And there was one final stage show. And I'm going to put you on the spot just now, Ocho. There was one final stage show in 1987. Now, the only original member of the cast who appeared in this show was 
Balloon. So the show's actually called Compo Plays Cupid. Can you hazard a guess? You know about different actors and so on, so just hazard a guess. If you had to cast somebody who isn't Clegg or Foggy or Seymour, but he's going to be alongside Compo in the stage show, give us some names. Throw some names out there. My brain has frozen. (laughs) So somebody northern. I'll give you a clue. We're talking about somebody who's associated with a long-running show based in Yorkshire, but wasn't back then. Bill Maynard? Nope. Long-running show set in Yorkshire? Uh-huh, you're, you're close to Bill Maynard. What, somebody else from Selwyn Froggett? What, wasn't Harold no, Goodwin no, in oh, no, okay. no, a show from about sort of 15 years later or so. To somebody from Heartbeat? Uh-huh. <laughs> As far as I can remember, all Heartbeat was was Bill Maynard and Mr. Derek. Derek Folds, that's it. There you go. There Derek you go. Folds! I was, I, was, I was worried you were going to guess Nick Berry or something like that. But no, Derek Folds, there you go. God, that sounds fantastic! That it sounds really <laughs> excellent. Derek Folds in Last of the Summer Wine, that's what the world needs. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> From that stage show, we've got three of the longest-running characters. And we've got that constant subplot. No matter what the trio are getting up to or what the ladies are gossiping about, whatever it may be, Howard is pursuing Marina behind Pearl's back. Now, I've previously suggested that the worst person in the sitcom universe, if you ignore evil Gary Sparrow, is Jack from On the Buses. I'm going to put forward the suggestion that Howard is the weakest sitcom character. Now, not weak as in poorly written or portrayed. I mean, him as a man, he is just, for goodness sake. I mean, he's just, I don't know if there are any words that accurately describe what he's like. I mean, you could say weaselly, that's one. You could say that he's pathetic. You could say that he's pitiful. You could just go for the entire thesaurus. But what is the attraction as far as Marina is concerned? Well, 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 well. This comes down to the big question, and we want audience participation on this. (laughs) Send us your tweets at the Sitcom Club. Feedback at sitcomclub.com if you want to email. Did Howard and Marina ever consummate their relationship? My theory is not. My theory is, is that Marina is in some ways quite a sad figure because she's not actually the brassy, fast woman. She wants to be thought of as like Diana Dawes in Queenie's Castle with a bleach blonde hair and leopard skin coat. But she isn't. By this time, they're in the Homeforth bubble. There aren't really any opportunities to be the brassy, fast woman. So just somebody who looks at her that way, she doesn't really care. She doesn't want to bed Howard. She just wants the local gossips to gossip about her because it means if they're gossiping about her, she's not one of them. Somebody's interested in her. Howard, he's the one person, I think, who really thinks she is what she isn't. You, however, seem to think (laughs) that they're at it like Randy Mink. (laughs) Like like the Seminite family's rabbits. My gut instinct is that they have done it at least once, possibly twice. In the same evening, I've no idea. But I you think, think Howard's that... ever done it in his life? <laughs> With the lights out. No, I think what's happened, I think that Pearl has left, foolishly, left Howard alone for a night. She's gone off to visit relatives somewhere. 
And yeah, Howard has invited Marina round for, you know, just a little bit of supper and what have you. And they've had a, you know, glass of wine, which turns a bottle of wine and so on. And, you know, neither of them can really remember what's happened, but they both think, even if it didn't happen, they both think that it did. And I suspect that Marina is now trying to recapture that moment. And to an extent, Howard is, although, uh, like you suggest, I don't know that he'd actually be capable of it. So that's my theory. I think something's happened at some point. And the question is then, does Pell know? Because obviously she knows about the two of them. Obviously she does. But does she know that what the initial spark was? Now, this is going to sound a bit odd. What do you think Pell's feelings towards Marina are? Because I've got a funny feeling that she's a rival of Marina's. Marina's a threat to her. But at the same time, she cares about Howard, and Howard gets a lot of pleasure from chasing Marina around the place. And also, if Howard is chasing Marina around the place, then he's not getting under Pell's feet. So, I don't know. I think that Pell might be sort of ambivalent towards Marina. I, I think maybe he's just like, what the hell do you see in him? Maybe even slightly worried for Marina. Do you realise he's not anybody? Well, send us your tweets. What do you think? Interestingly enough, Howard Marina, even though it's a staple of mid-1980s through to 2010 or thereabouts, last of summer wine. Interesting thing is that this is based upon a subplot of the very first series. Because we mentioned that the trio are always hanging around in the library. And there we've got a Mr. Wainwright and a Mrs. Partridge. And the implication is that if they're not having a fair, at least Mr. Wainwright is very much chasing after Mrs. Partridge. And they're not doing a very good job of concealing this from the patrons of the library. Mr. Wainwright is, he's actually slightly more highly sexed than Howard, I would say. Actually, Even, even then, I think it's like he's a dog chasing a car. He wouldn't know what to do. If he caught one. Hmm, yeah. But actually, no, think about he's it, he's more overt than Howard. He he is, but he's more overt than Howard as well because he's constant. I think he reads too much fiction. I think he reads too much. I mean, he, he would probably call them the classics, but actually they're just romantic fiction and he's got ideas in his head and what have you. And the idea that this is not visible to the trio is absurd. And so that puts him in a position of being blackmailed on occasion, especially by Compo. Well, he comes back, apparently, in 1976. He's in two series, and then he appears again in 1976. So there's an excuse to keep going with this. So late 1980s, I mean, we, we start to get a lot more characters. It's interesting that we we don't seem to shed any characters. I mean, there are shows like Are You Being Served, which go through a lot of cast changes over the years. And this doesn't seem to go through too many cast changes as much as just keep on adding and adding and adding more people. It's the British so, version of The Simpsons. Yeah. So, I mean, 88, for example, you've suddenly got Jean Alexander. She'd just retired from playing Elder Ogden the year before. And she's got the bric-a-brac slash antique shop and she's always trying to she's grab... She's a bunch of Arkwright jokes so left over. Mm -hmm. We've got Smiler, played by Stephen Lewis. We've got then Josephine Chusen comes in. We've got June Whitfield. I mentioned Trevor Bannister earlier on. Trevor Bannister and Christopher Beanie would be quite often seen on the golf course and later episodes and then it undergoes quite a seismic sort of change in those last few series because after Bill Owen's death we go through like a little period of trying to replace the third wheel and we've got like Keith Clifford as 
Robin Hood descendant and so on. We've got Tom Owen coming in as well, but that, that doesn't really seem to gel. And so eventually you end up with Frank Thornton and Peter Salas almost becoming supporting players within their own sitcom. And sometimes they might top and tail an episode, whereas the bulk of the action is from the other characters. And you've got, of course, Russ Abbott comes in, you've got Brian Murphy, who is also, funnily enough, chasing after Nora Batty, Burt Crouch, and so on. By the time it came to its conclusion, you mentioned earlier on that it felt like a sort of comic book strip show, and it really does feel like that in those last few episodes because it's like almost every single person's got their little scene. And you, know, you might have like a dozen different scenes which are very, very faintly related to one another. But as far as it having like a tangible story arc, it's certainly not as tight as earlier episodes. Just before we wrap up, Till, I'll have a wee surprise. Have a look at your screen. You didn't know I was going to send you this, but I just want to get your reaction to this. That's better drawn than I expected. Are you familiar with this? No, no, I'm not at all. Okay, now, to explain, listeners, in the course of making a few notes about this earlier one, I discovered that there was a Last of the Summer Wine comic strip in the Daily Star in 1980. And that there, you can find it on Amazon if you search, there is like a sort of Garfield-style compendium of the comic strips available. <laughs> now, the reason I mention this is twofold. Last of the Summer Wine without Last of the Summer Wine. <laughs> the reason I mentioned this is twofold. One, it was to surprise Till because I was tickled when you were saying earlier on about oh, it's got a sort of Andy Cap feel to it, and I thought, do you know about this comic strip or not? The other thing to let yourself know, dear listener, is that if you do happen to have a copy of this book, it was released in 1983 under the Daily Express publishing name. If you haven't have a copy of this book, apparently it's very difficult to get hold of. And when you look it up on Amazon, all you see are reviews from people saying. I ordered this book on Amazon and they sent me this novel by Roy Clark. It's not the right book. It isn't the comic strips. So if you've got this book, get on Amazon or eBay and make very, very Well, I've just tried to buy a copy, so let's thing. see what I get. Have you? What are you? Seriously? Yeah. You, you just ordered it just now? Yeah, said 1p. <laughs> it's like, well, I don't mind paying the postage and packing for a 1p okay, copy well, of the book. Let's see what I, I get. Right. Guaranteed, this is going to be this is the first ever sitcom club with a cliffhanger. We will come back to this as soon as you receive whatever it is that you're going to receive. And I'm going to bet you a jam tart just now that you're going to receive a novel of Last of Summer Wine by Roy Clark. Well, you know what? I wouldn't mind. Whatever else has got. Well, that's that's fine, but it's not the advertised object, is it? No, no, but okay. So yeah, no, we'll definitely update you on a future podcast. We will let you know what does Tilt receive in the post. As you say, we are on twice a fortnight rations from now on. So the next time we come back on the Sitcom Club in two weeks' time, we're going to be going back to our class-based discussions with our guest, Birdie. And we're going to be looking at professional class this time. And yes, it does mean we're going to watch Trouble in Mind, which we've talked about so many times. I think we've talked about Trouble in Mind. Trouble in Mind became the new spats, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know if anybody's actually keeping count, but probably the top three shows will be Spats, Trouble in Mind, and Nelly, in terms of how often they refer to. Oh, of course, Callan, late entry. <laughs> but, so that's going to be coming up in a fortnight's time. This time next week, be another Jaffa Kicks for Proust. What are we talking about, Tilt? We're talking about Doctor Who, because one, we want your clicks, we want your downloads, and two. 
I was watching a Doctor Who, I thought, I bet Gary would like this. And we'll find out whether he did or not. I still feel like a guinea pig in some strange laboratory experiment. But we'll come back to that. So this time next week, Jaffa Cakes for Proust. In the meantime, you can hear all the previous editions of the Sitcom Club and Jaffa Cakes by going to sitcomclub.com and also podnose.com where you find all manner of other fab groovy podcasts. If you've got anything for us, as we said, you can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com or you can tweet us at the sitcom club. In the meantime, you've been Tilt. This is true. I've been Gary and this has been the aforementioned Sitcom Club.